0: Good. Always good to uh, be preaching the day after a Gator victory. Um, The idol has served you well in the last 24 hours. Um, If you're a nolan here, I apologize. Your idol has failed you. So Jesus is good though. Amen. Hey, we're going to be celebrating some baptisms today. We got three people stepping up to be baptized today. It's going to be awesome. So here's what that means. Because we are doing that at the end of our service, we're gonna have to maximize our time this morning. So like if you feel like I'm talking uh, at one and a half or two times podcast speed this morning, that's because I'm going to be because um, I'm still I have a lot of text to get through this morning. Um, if this is your first Sunday with us since we've started our series in First Corinthians and you have not gotten a scripture journal yet, raise your hand. We would love to give that to you. That is as our free gift to you. Um, we want you to have the Word of God in your hand. We want you to be able to take notes and follow along because we think God's Word uh, will uh, do a work in your life. It's how God is speaking to us, and so we want to give that to you as a free gift. So last week, we looked at the first 17 verses uh, in this letter that Paul wrote to uh, the church at Corinth, and here was kind of the main idea of what we saw, uh, that the Christians who were at this church in Corinth were so blessed by god that the divisions and the fights and the quarrels that they were having over minor issues had no place among them that was the point that that paul was trying to make to them he was saying hey there's no room for this level of disunity and fighting and division and quarreling among you. Because if you think about the magnitude of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ, it should lead us to familial unity, not disunity. And the Corinthian church had a ton of issues. And if you've read any of Paul's letters in the New Testament, that's not uncommon from the other churches that he wrote letters to but their issues were different from most of these other churches because their issues were internal. You know, normally a church was facing persecution or facing false teaching from outside of the church, but the Corinthian church was facing division inside where they were struggling kind of with two big things. They were dealing with a struggle to assimilate inside their culture in Corinth and how that was causing them to not be distinct and follow God and His commands. And then they were also struggling with division and tribalism inside of the church. Now, guys, let me just say this. And this was kind of one of the points I was trying to make last week. This is the church in the United States in the year 2021. That the main problems that are facing this church are issues that the church, and I don't mean this particular expression, the local church here in Gainesville. I mean the church universal, cross-denominations, non-denominational, whatever you want to call it, these are the issues primarily plaguing the church, at least in our country. That we struggle with understanding the balance of how to approach culture while still remaining distinct and loving Jesus. And the church definitely struggles over division and tribalism because guess what? The culture does. And when we allow the culture to dictate things, we struggle as well. And Paul made this appeal to them, and that was an appeal for unity, right? And last week he said, stop worshiping or idolizing particular leaders inside of this church. And not only that, stop breaking fellowship and unity with one another over who you follow, and so the kind of the, the charge I gave to us last week to consider throughout the week on how we might approach uh, the, the life as followers, maybe the action item for us as a church was kind of answering this question, what in my life is allowing disunity to be, to be created amongst the body of Christ? And I think at least in some of the gospel communities that I, leaders that I've talked to this past week, there was a lot of good discussion about that in these groups, but we're gonna transition away from that particular issue that was causing disunity to another one. And as I was studying the text this week, it reminded me of something that happened to me a couple years ago. I was working for a bank here in town, and one of my coworkers asked me a question one evening. We're sitting there and she goes, You know, Kevin, I know you're a pastor, so I have a question to you. Why would God murder his son? I was like, okay, wow. Right, here we go. Buckle up. Right? It was a fascinating question. I had been a follower of Jesus at that point, probably eight or nine years. I'd never been asked. Um, that question before. I've been through seminary at this point. Um, I read C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity every year kind of as a just a, a refresher on apologetics. I've read countless other apologetic books. And so normally when someone addresses me with a biblical question, I, I feel prepared and ready to go. I feel prepared and ready to answer them, uh, kind of as Peter commands us in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, to be ready to give it a defense at any time for the hope that is within us. I normally feel this way, and yet she, she asked me this question, and I, I, I wish there had been a camera to capture my face at that moment. I was shocked. Like, she caught me completely off guard. And by the way, there is an answer to that question. Uh, God didn't murder his son. Jesus willingly gave his life for us. So it's more complicated than that. But the question caught me totally off guard. And I realized this. She was asking that question because the gospel and the idea of a crucified savior and king was ludicrous to her. She's like, that's, that's crazy. I'm, we're supposed to follow this guy and, and God killed him? That's crazy, right? And it caused me to, to realize something. And if you've been a Christian for any season or length of time, Here's something that we need to recognize as professing disciples of Jesus. We're going to look like fools sometimes to the world by believing what we believe. I mean, guys, think about this for a minute. We believe that God sent his son in the flesh as fully man and fully God. And that same guy lived a perfect life. And then through no action of his own, but but through surrendering to the Father's perfect will for his life, he laid down his life at the hand of wicked and sinful human beings. And he faced the most excruciating death that any human could devise during his time period. He submitted himself to the point of death, death on a cross. And then that's not the craziest thing we believe as Christians. We believe that guy was buried and then three days later rose from the dead to prove that sin and death had been defeated once and for all and that he's now ruling and reigning at the right hand of God the Father Almighty in heaven. It's crazy. But sometimes the truth is crazy. But it's crazy. And as I was talking to her, I was like, okay, this is one of those moments where I need to realize that no amount of philosophy, no amount of argumentation, no amount of human wisdom is going to bridge the gap that only God can bridge. Because earthly wisdom is based in human arrogance, and it rejects God as the final arbitrator of truth. But God's wisdom is based on his nature, his character, and the good news of what he has done for us in Christ. And so if we are going to proclaim to be followers of Jesus, we're going to look foolish sometimes. And guys, this is exactly what was going on in Corinth. Many of them had come to know Jesus. They had been walking in this community now for years on end. And as Paul writes to them, and disunity and all sorts of other issues have crept into this church, the Corinthians have begun to elevate human wisdom over the gospel message. And it is starting to create some serious problems. And so Paul is going to address this issue with them kind of in three ways. So we're going to have kind of like three key points this morning. This is my TED talk that you guys are coming to this morning, right? But here's kind of the three things that Paul shares with us on how to kind of combat this idea of human wisdom over the folly of the good news. The first one is this, that worldly wisdom is ultimately proven to be an error in the end. That's going to be the first argument that Paul's going to make. The second one is he's going to ask the Christians in Corinth to remember how they came to know Christ. He's going to draw them back to their testimony and draw them to remember that so they might be able to see how that is different from the human wisdom that they are now falling into and placing their hope in. And then lastly, he's going to encourage them to emulate his ministry and his preaching of the gospel in its simplicity. So let's look at these first couple verses, starting in verse 18, how worldly wisdom is ultimately in error in light of God and his wisdom. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Right. So rem- remember last week, Right. Paul had spent 18 months in Corinth. He had planted the church, and then he spent quite a bit of time there. And if you know anything about him, 18 months is significantly longer than most of the other churches that he had planted throughout the Roman world. And so he had been there for 18 months. And when we arrive to verse 18, right, after all of that ministry that Paul had done, the investing, the unpacking of the scriptures, the explaining what God had fulfilled to them, we we arrive at verse 18, and we see that Paul is transitioning from this thought last week of remember who you are and what God has done for you and don't allow disunity to break the beauty of what God has done for us in Christ. And so as he transitions to verse 18, we're gonna see that they've gone from disunity over celebrity leadership inside of the church to disunity over different schools of thoughts and teaching inside the Greek and Roman world. And verse 17 is kind of a connecting verse through the ideas. Let me read verse 17 for you. Paul says this, "'For Christ did not send me to baptize, "'but to preach the gospel, "'and not with eloquent wisdom.'" lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And there's kind of this key idea inside of that verse that Paul is communicating to the readers. He's saying, hey, the power to save people from their sin, the power to save people from death, the power to save people from their rebellion towards God and their sinfulness is revealed in Jesus and his saving work. It's found in the cross of Christ. Not my eloquent speech, not in my rhetoric, not in the rhetoric or argumentation of men. It's found in the truth of a fact of something that happened and occurred of what God did through the life of Jesus. That truth and hope are found in an actual historical event and person, not in the wisdom of men and their ability to argue and persuade. And yet, the church was not only dividing into factions over worldly leadership, but they were also allowing worldly philosophy to begin to influence them and pull them away from that power that Paul is talking about that's found in that message of what Jesus has done. One of the primary divisions in the church was over this idea of whether it was appropriate to use uh, Greek philosophy, specifically sophistry, inside of of the church as a means of wisdom and revelation in the church. And if you're unfamiliar with sophistry, here's kind of what sophists believed. Sophist thought was rooted in this idea that might makes right. And ultimately, kind of maybe to put it another way, that ultimately power wins in the end. And if you can outpower somebody in an argument, that is a way to get people to submit and to believe in things. And so kind of what was happening then is there was this this idea behind new methods of ministry, argumentation, using uh, different argument uh, methods to try to win people over to the church so they might increase their influence inside of Corinth. That was their whole goal. Sophists are incredibly pragmatic in the sense that they just want to know what works. They're like businessmen, and, and they would use any means they could to elicit a response in people that would earn their desired outcome. This included deception and argumentation in order to bring people to their school of thought. So they would flat out lie if they had to, if it would get you to believe in their particular school of thought. Now, I don't know if you guys know this or not. This still happens today, particularly in politics. And and by the way, the moment I say that, everyone's like, yep, amen, right? And the Republicans are in the room. We're like, yep, the Democrats do that all the time, right? And the Democrats are like, yep, the Republicans do that like crazy. And I'm here to tell you, everyone does it. And we get duped by it. And we get drawn into it and we get pulled into it exactly the same way that the church of Corinth does. And Paul's point to them as he's drawing this out is the emphasis on human wisdom will not work in light of the gospel message. Right? He's, he's saying to them, the good news of what Jesus has done is a historical fact. Either it occurred or it did not. And in light of that, it does not need sophist influence of argumentation to get people to believe in it. You know, one of my favorite pastors, uh, he he's kind of like a pastor to pastors. He's one of the deans at uh, Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. His name's Jared Wilson. Some of you ladies who have done our women's groups use a lot of his uh, curriculum to um, go through your women's groups. But he kind of has this famous line for pastors where he says, you will win people with what you attract them with, right? And his point was like for years and years, the church used uh, like exotic worship and rock bands on stage and fog machines and they would create programs to attract families to come to church and people came to church, but what they attracted with them with is what they won them to, which was being served, being entertained, And when churches weren't doing that or people got bored, guess what happened? They left the church. Because they weren't drawn to the church for Christ. They were drawn to their own idols and preferences. And when idols and preferences fail, people run and look for something else. And what Paul is saying here is, church, if you do this, if you run to worldly wisdom, you may even attract people and think that you are bearing fruit, but you are ultimately building them up on a foundation that will fail. And all it will lead to is fighting and disunity amongst you, and that the emphasis on human wisdom will not work in the light of the gospel. And the question we can ask ourselves is why? Why has God decided that the message of what Jesus has done is this ridiculous message that looks like folly to the world around us? And Paul Paul flat out shares it. He says, to ridicule the wise, or those at least that think they're wise. Guys, do you know that God has a sense of humor? He loves it. He's like, man, these guys are so smart. And yet they can't handle all of these things that we know about Jesus. They can't handle it, right? Like, have you guys ever heard some of the arguments against the resurrection of Jesus? They're wild. Like, one of them, one of them claims that Jesus' disciples, right? Remember those guys? The fishermen overtook a Roman legion outside of the uh, tomb, fought them off, then pushed a couple tons stone to the side to then pull him out, and then not only that, Jesus looked fine, and then started a, a movement of people that said they had seen him raised from the dead, and all that all that is recorded in scriptures that there were holes in his hands and feet, but yet somehow this guy who was beaten and bruised earlier in the week looks fine now, or they're either making it all up. Right, that's just one argument against this, but human wisdom is always looking to be right. And so it will stand on its assumptions in the end of the day, no matter how absurd the argument can be. And Paul uses two main arguments to push back on human wisdom here in these verses, right? The first one is a biblical argument. And the second one is he's going to share with them examples of the world that God ultimately puts human wisdom to shame, This first one, right, biblical truth, if you get to verse 19, Paul quotes from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14 there, where Isaiah rebukes Israel for challenging God's power by relying on earthly wisdom and intelligence. God's like, look, you know me, you know what I've done for you, and yet you're running to earthly wisdom and intelligence. I'm going to make you look stupid. That's what God's promise is to Israel. And guess what he does? He makes them look stupid. He does exactly what he says he's going to do. Then when you get to verse 20, he kind of asks four rhetorical questions that elicit some sort of response from us, right? The first one he asks uh, is, where is the one who is wise? Now, if you know what Paul is doing here, because he's quoted from Isaiah chapter 29, he's continuing to remind his readers of the book of Isaiah, Right? And so when he asks that, who is the one who is wise? He's referring back to Isaiah chapter 19, where God mocked the Egyptian wise men who had promised wisdom, but never delivered. God just mocks them. Oh yeah, you guys thought you were real smart, didn't you? What now? Right, then he says, where is the scribe? He's referring to Isaiah chapter 33, where God ridicules the Assyrians for assuming that they had ultimately had victory over God. God's like, no. See, I allowed you to conquer Israel. That was me who did that. So now I'm going to give you over to the Persians. Congratulations, you lose again. Right? God just consistently right, does these things and openly in scripture mocks them. And Paul is pointing that out for us to see, hey, we might claim to be wise. People have been doing that for thousands and thousands of years and look at God's response to them. And then he asks this question, where is the debater of this age? He's moving on to their current day and age in modern Greece, and he's challenging those who love to argue philosophy. He's saying, hey, sophists, you smarter than the Egyptians? You, you, your military might bigger than the Assyrians? What, what, come on, debate God, what are you going to do? Go for it, we'll see how that plays out for you. And then he says this, has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? Church, he's looking at us and he's saying, hey, whatever trap we might fall into. So for us, if it's getting too involved politically, if it's being too motivated by things going on in the world around us, if it's relying too much on apologetics or certain argumentation styles, whatever it might be, he's asking this, has God not in the past made foolish the wisdom of this world? Will he not do it again? Especially." if you are rejecting the gospel. He's, he's crying out to them, stop trusting in Greek philosophy over the gospel. Stop trusting in the wisdom of men over the good news that you know of what Christ has done for you. So he shares these biblical examples how God has consistently triumphed over the wisdom of men and the wisdom of the world. And he's gonna move into examples in their day of the world, right? And he shares three different groups. He shares the Jews, the Greeks, and those that have trusted in Christ, right? He says to the Jews, right, they demand signs. He said, that's why Jews haven't accepted the gospel. They demand signs. They wanna see signs from us that prove the gospel is true. Well, here's the thing though. Did Jesus not provide signs for them over the course of his ministry? And yet, what did they consistently do with those signs? They rejected them. And lastly, there's, a, there's one moment in the Gospels where the Pharisees come to Jesus and they demand a sign of them. And he says, an adulterous generation asks for a sign, but no sign will be given to them except for what? The sign of Jonah. Just as, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth. Guess what Jesus did after his death on the cross? He spent three days in the earth and then arose again, right? The sign has been given to them. And yet Paul's point is they still what? They still reject it. The very thing they ask for, this is why I always tell people to be concerned, especially when they're professing non-believers and I'm talking to them they're like, if God just showed up to me right here in front of me, then I would believe. I'm like, that's an awful lot of faith that you have in yourself, Because you might not. What if he didn't show up exactly how you wanted him to show up, but he still showed up? How do you know he hasn't already? How do you know he's not using me right now? Right, there's this consistent theme where they cry out for signs, the signs are given, and yet in their human wisdom, they still reject. He says, well, think about this, guys. Think about the Greeks, right? The Jews, okay, we get it. They wanted a sign, they didn't get it. Well, Greeks seek wisdom, Right? They want proof through human wisdom, through ideas that they could discuss and debate. And he says, yet we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews. And the reason why this was so hard for Jewish people to understand is in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, right, Jews believed to be hung from a tree was to be cursed by God. And here's the thing, Paul would not disagree with them. He'd say, absolutely. Jesus became a curse for us because we were accursed, and that he hung from the cross to take on our sin and guilt and rebellion and shame. And so absolutely, we agree with you, but in his resurrection, God demonstrated that he has forgiven us for that rebellion. He says that while we preach Christ crucified, it's folly to the Gentiles because God couldn't defeat his enemies and died on a cross, right? They look at the story of the gospel and what Jesus has done. They say, well, why didn't Jesus just kill everyone right then and there, right? We win everything by military power and by reason. If Jesus was really God, he would have just smited all of his enemies right there and set up a military kingdom on the spot. Why should I follow him? And he says, and yet to the Christian, this message is the power of God to save. If you look at verse 25, let me read that to you. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God has regularly shown us his way is true wisdom and stronger than the wisdom of men. Will you trust that? We are highly educated, just like the Greeks. We're in a university city. Most of you guys are here to get a degree of some sort, right? To expand your mind, to know more, to become an expert in your field. But the one danger with that is we start to think we're smarter than we really are. And Paul reminds us the good news of what God has done for us in Christ is a foolish message of a sinless savior who gave his life for us. He didn't conquer in military might. He didn't, collar. he didn't conquer with eloquence of words or rhetoric or wisdom or philosophy. No, he conquered by giving his life willingly as a substitute for you and for me. And so as he kind of dismantles this idea that, you know, because this is what we do. right? Every generation thinks they're the, 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 the best thing ever. Like, we're so much smarter than the previous generation, right? And so the Greeks by this time are like, see, the sophists of a couple hundred years ago, they were close, but now we figured it out. And guys, I would tell you and I would submit to you, especially in a city like ours, we're doing the same thing. We just use different names. We use words like science, education, philosophy. And we think that those will solve all the problems of the world and that we'll be the ones to fix everything. You guys realize, by the way, how narcissistic that sounds? Don't worry about it, I got it. We have found the ticket. And every generation does this. And Paul is pointing out to them, every generation does this, every generation fails, yet the word of the cross remains firm and powerful. And guys, just so we're aware, these two examples, where's Rome? Where is the wisdom of the Greeks? Where's the church? Right, the church has expanded, and yet the, the wisdom of the Jews and the Greeks have come and gone and come back again and gone again, but the word of the Lord has remained. Because as Paul shares with us, right, Scripture is ultimately unveiled to us to show that worldly wisdom is an error compared to God not only this, and he's going to move into this. He says, okay, starting out with this argumentation, I want you to see the folly of human wisdom in comparison with God and his word and what he has done, and a testimony of who he is. But not only that, Corinthians, I want you to remember who you are and how you came to be a part of the church, the body of Christ, and came to believe. Right? Look at verse 26 with me. For consider your calling, brothers, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. How many of you guys have ever seen the movie Lion King? Most of you. The rest of you, I don't know who you are. If your roommate has Disney+, Plus, watch it this afternoon. But I, I love that movie. It's one of the first movies that as a kid, that's right, I was alive then when that movie came out. My dad, it was one of the first movies my dad ever took me to as a kid. I remember sitting in the movie theater as like a little kid just crying my eyes out when Mufasa died. I mean, just bawling. My dad was probably like, what have I done? I've scarred my kid for life. And, but as you watch that movie, right, Simba is kind of this beautiful story, right, of losing who he is losing what his father had kind of instilled in him and what he sees, right? And after his father dies, he runs off basically to shirk his responsibility, to shirk his duty, right? Because he doesn't know who he is anymore because he's, he's wrapped his identity up in his father. But once dad is gone, right, he just, he just runs away, right? And as he's out there in the world, right, he's just kind of like, he's doing what really, guys, I'm just gonna call you out, especially if you're a non-Christian here this morning, the primary issue I see in Gen Z Right? They fail to face the reality of, of their own sinfulness. They fail to face the reality of the world around them. And so they use this really cool term that makes them sound spiritual, but allows them to get out of free without ever having to actually think anything. I'm an agnostic. Oh, do you, do you, by the way, do you know what the word agnostic means? Because it's become like some seeker sensitive term of like being really wise. The word in Greek means you don't know anything. So, by the way, if, if you're in here this morning, I'm going agnostic. What you're telling me, I don't know anything. Cool. Awesome. Well, let me tell you the truth then. Because that's what it means, and words matter. Okay? So, Simba runs off, right? He hangs out with his friends, and he does what a lot of you guys do, right? He finds two guys who are just trying to eat every day and just live their best life now and hang out in Moon and Pumbaa. Right? Their philosophy in life is akuna matata. A lot of you guys are like, oh, I'm living for the weekend, right? YOLO. Right? We all want to be like Simba. Right? And as we do that, right? Simba's out there, and then Nala shows up. She calls him back, right, to return home, to return to his duty, to be who he was created to be. Right? And what's he do? I can't, can't do it. I don't, you don't know me, you don't know what I've done. You don't know who I am. Sound familiar, by the way? And then Rafiki meets him, the cool little baboon. (laughs) Does something demonic and calls Mufasa back from the clouds.
1: (laughs) Some of you guys are like, oh my gosh,
0: like the gospel's in line. No, (laughs) right? It's an illustration. I'm using it. It's allegory. Okay, stick with me right? Mufasa comes back and talks from the, cra- the clouds, right? And, and here's Simba, right? He wants all this information. And what does he just want back more than anything? He wants dad back. And what does dad say? Nope. But remember who you are, because I invested in you, right? right? And he reconnects him and reminds him of his calling. And guys, follow me here. Paul is doing something very similar to the church at Corinth. It's like, look, you guys have left what you knew to be true. You have left who you are. You have left your first love, which is what God has done for you in Christ. And you have run to worldly wisdom, power, and Greek philosophy. God has saved you in Christ. Remember who you are. It's like, look, Many of you who are reading this letter, think about who you were before you came to know Jesus. Many of you had nothing. Many of you were nothing. Many of you brought nothing to the table. Some of you guys think you're so smart now because you're so educated. Remember who you were before you came to Christ? You brought no celebrity value or wisdom or power to the church. And yet God chose to save you. Why? Not because of you because of him, because of his love for you in Christ. And as he called you in power, he called you for his sake, not yours. And human wisdom is always rooted in arrogance and pride, and that's exactly what you've run to. He's crying out, God saved you into Christ. What does that mean? It means you shared in his judgment. It means if you identify as a Christian, God declared you guilty, you recognize that you were guilty and that penalty was paid by Jesus. It means that you share in Christ's death and resurrection, meaning you agree to die to self and to live to God and for God and for his glory, not your own. And that you seek obedience. Guys, we use that word Lord for Jesus, not for fun. It's meant to communicate God and his title as king over our lives. I love talking to people, they're like, when, especially if they want to talk politics to me, and I start talking to them like, man, you sound like bizarre. Like, what do you believe? I'm like, I'm a monarchist, and that usually gets some weird looks. It's like, I believe God is king. And I may be sitting in part of a democratic republic here in the U.S., but ultimately I'm a member of a monarchy. And my king and his kingdom has full reign and authority over all kingdoms on this earth. And we see Paul as he calls them to remember this, to remember what God has done for them. As he calls them to remember where they came from and to remember their testimony, he wants them to do this so that they will boast because they're boasting. Look how smart we are. Look how we're drawing people to our church. Look at our argumentation. Look at our wisdom. And as they're being drawn to this, he wants them to boast, but he wants them to boast in the Lord. As he says in verse 31. Guys, I'm gonna share a piece of good news with you right now. God is out for his own glory, not yours. God is out for the exaltation of his name, not yours. God is out for him looking glorious to the nations, not our church, not our ministry, not our wisdom. He is out for his own glory. And some of you guys are like, man, that sounds really narcissistic. Not if you're the God of the universe, right? The problem with narcissists when they believe they're, most, they're the most important person on the planet is that they're not. Some of you guys know that person. Jackie's like, I live with him. <laughs> like so, but a narcissist, by definition, believes they're the most important human being in a room, in a, in a state, in a city, in a planet, and they're not. But guess what? If they were, they wouldn't be a narcissist. Guess what? Philosophically, track with me here. God is. He's the omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, all-knowing creator of the universe who spoke everything into being. It's not narcissistic for him to think I'm better than you. And I'm deserving of attention while you are not. I spoke you into existence. And guys, that's good news. It, I promise you it is. Some of you guys are like, that's mean. No. Stop. Stop worshiping yourself for a second and think about whether you're really worthy of that or not. And as God calls us out here, right? And calls us and says, Worldly wisdom, all it ever does is pr- try to prove how smart we are, but God in his mercy does not give us the option of promoting ourselves. It says, church, remember who you are. Remember where you came from. Lowly sinners who could not save yourselves, forgiven, loved, loved, adopted and invited into the family of God because of Jesus Christ and what he has done for you. And when you think upon that, you can boast, but you'll boast in the name of Jesus, not in yourself. You'll draw attention to yourself so that it might be reflected back up to the one who saved you, Jesus Christ. Remember your lowly state, and yet what God has done for you so that you might see a greater worship of Jesus. So he calls out worldly wisdom in the scriptures and in real life examples. He calls them to remember their testimony so they might see the power of God in their life over human wisdom. And then look at this third thing that he does in chapter two. He's going to call them to emulate his example. He's saying, look, guys, you, you may have even started with proper motives by submitting to this wisdom, to submitting to these various schools of thought so that you might do ministry, here's what I'm gonna call you to do. Instead of running to earthly wisdom, run to the simplicity of preaching the gospel like I did when I first arrived in Corinth. He says, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is a simple argument in Paul's mind. He's like, look, although I am highly educated, Although in the Jewish culture, I was a celebrity. Although I was well known throughout the Israeli world and in the Middle East, I did not show up trying to prove how smart I was to you. That's his argument. Like, you guys saw me. I was there when I showed him in Corinth. What was I doing? And God in his mercy used me when I chose to be weak, fearful, and trembling. And what happened? You guys responded and believed. I wasn't here using sophist arguments with you. I wasn't here using Greek wisdom of philosophy and argumentation with you. No, I showed up. I opened the scriptures. I preached Christ as the Messiah, and you responded. Why? Why did you respond? Because you're responding now to earthly wisdom and and men and, and all the folly that is around you. Why did you respond then? And his point is this, that the spirit of God was demonstrated in my weakness. You saw the power of God in the gospel message, not in me. And you chose to follow Jesus, not me. And God saved you to him in spite of me, not because of me. That word demonstrated is a a legal term which described irrefutable evidence, right? And if you put that back in the context of what he says there, he's saying, look, God's power was fully put on display and no one could argue it. And Think back to how you were saved. Think back to my ministry. Do you know what you see in it? You see the power of God behind it because God seeks to make the wisdom of men look foolish and he uses the foolishness of the cross to bring glory to his name and to save weary, broken sinners of which we all are. See, Paul's point to Corinth and to us, if you are a Christian here this morning, here's what he desires for us. And if you are not a Christian this morning, here's what he desires for you. He wants us to rest on the sure foundation of our faith in Christ. That results in true wisdom. Wisdom that exalts Jesus above all else. And I know that even as we we looked at Paul's argument, there's a tendency for us to doubt and distrust. And how do we know? This was written 2,000 years ago. How do we know, right? How can I know that God's wisdom is greater than the wisdom of man? Have you seen the advances men have made over the last several thousand years since Paul wrote this letter? Maybe they just didn't know enough then, but now we do. I would just submit this to you. There are very few places, at least in the West, which is where we are right now, where the cross of Christ has not influenced our ethical, moral, political framework of all that we say and do. Very few places. 2,000 years ago, obvious moral rules and laws that we accept to be true implicitly in the West would not have been obvious in Greek and Roman society, and yet we accept them as rule and law here. Things like, if you don't like somebody and you're more powerful than them, just kill them. How many of you guys like MMA and boxing here? Notice how few hands went up, and it's all guys. In first century Rome, they literally brought slaves into the Colosseum and murdered them for entertainment. Should we bring that back? Put it on pay-per-view. Anybody down for that? Why not? Because we've been influenced by the cross. Because the cross has so influenced the culture that we live in. Because it is the wisdom of God over the wisdom of man. And we see inherent dignity and value in human life because of Jesus things like infanticide has been proven to be terrible in our eyes because of the cross. Things like caring for the least of these, exalting traits like humility and meekness, things our culture does would have seemed foolish to the Greeks in Corinth. And yet 2,000 years after the resurrection, the weak have been shown to have shamed the strong. The strength of Greek philosophy and the power of Roman dominance have been put to open shame by the cross of Jesus Christ. Guys, that is what we preach. That is what we believe in. Because what still remains some 2,000 years later is the simple story of a Nazarene carpenter who was God's son, who gave his own life for you and for me because of our sinfulness and rebellion to the creator. And as he gave his life, the wrath of God for our rebellion was fully satisfied. And Jesus gave to us It's called the great exchange amongst theologians. Jesus gave to us his righteous standing before God the Father, that when God looks at Jesus and he sees his perfection and he sees the beauty of obedience and what he has done and the way that he loved others and pursued God's wisdom and how he pursued God's desires for the world that he created, he looks at Jesus and says, I love him. And then Jesus went to the cross, took on our sin and gave that righteousness to us. So that when God sees you, if you are in Christ, you are hidden in him. And God doesn't see your imperfections. He doesn't see your rebellion. He doesn't see your sin. He sees his son because of what Christ has done for you. And then God made a mockery of sin and death and put it to open shame by pulling Jesus out of that tomb and resurrecting him three days later. Why? Because the wisdom of man is folly in comparison to the creator of the universe. We're gonna do baptisms here in a few minutes, guys. And and baptisms at Aletheia Church are an opportunity for us to celebrate embracing the foolishness of the cross. You're gonna hear the stories of, of some young men and women whose lives have been transformed by that story of what Jesus Christ did. How their lives have been dramatically changed because it has the power to save. It has the power to save you. It has the power to save your family. It has the power to save your friends. And some of you guys, Kevin, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've done. And yet God in his mercy put these Things to shame. So here's how I'm going to encourage us to respond this morning. All right, we take communion here at Aletheia Church every week. Right? And when we take communion, what we're doing is we are identifying that Christ poured out his flesh and blood for us for the forgiveness of our sins. Right, and I tell us every every time I'm up here talking about communion, I say communion at Aletheia Church is not a solemn occasion. It's not a somber affair. It's not something where we're sad or penitent or uh, broken up over what we've done. Although the Lord might lead you to brokenness over your sin, ultimately taking communion is an act of worship. Where right, what we are declaring is because Jesus gave His own flesh and blood for our sinfulness, we can rejoice that we are forgiven in Christ for what he has done. And we take the elements as an act of worship saying, God, we believe that you have truly done this for us in Jesus and we worship you and we thank you because of what you've done for us. And so we're gonna take communion. You can take it at any point you want during that first song, right? I would ask you to think about your own sin. If there's anything you need to confess before God and your creator that you would confess and repent of it and then that you would take communion as an act of worship, thanking God for what he has done. If you're not a Christian here this morning, please don't take communion because it doesn't mean the same thing that it does to us. That it is an act that we take seriously as Christians to worship him. If you're hungry, go grab a donut. But here's what I would encourage you to do instead. Why don't you believe? Especially in light of what we talked about this morning, why not? Why not? What is the world offering you that's better than the creator of the universe? What does the world offer that's better than restoration to God himself? Now I encourage you this morning to submit to Jesus and then here's what we're gonna do. All right, we're gonna sing. We're gonna put our hands in the air. We're gonna talk about how amazing Jesus is. And then if you notice when you sat down in in your seat this morning, there was a blank note card. Here's what I want you to do. We've been doing something at this church now for over 2 years called our one campaign. Right? And here's what it is. It's super simple. We want you to write down the name of someone who does not yet know Jesus who you want to see come to know Jesus. If you are not a follower of Jesus, write your own name down. I would imagine you are here this morning cuz someone in this room probably wrote your name down. And then here's what you're going to do. If you feel led Right, any point during the two songs during worship, you can just come up here and lay them at the cross because that's what we're going to do. We're going to pray for these people, we're going to lay them at the feet of Jesus. We're going to ask God to do what only He can do, which is draw sinful, selfish, stubborn, foolish men and women to Himself and save them from themselves. And then we're going to pursue these people. We're going to pray for them. We're going to love on them. And we're going to share the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, just like Paul did. Church, I'm here to tell you this. We came here a little over nine years ago, my wife and 15 other people. The average age of the people that showed up was 26. We had no jobs. We had no money. And we had no idea what the heck we were doing. In many ways, we still don't. But we've been preaching the cross of Christ. And you are a testimony this morning being here to God's faithfulness if we just follow his design and preach the gospel. So think about who you might want to, God to save. Write them down, lay them down, and let's see what God might do. Let's pray.